Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Michael Wheeler. Professor Wheeler is Professor of English at the University of Southampton in the UK. And today we are discussing his book, The Antheneum, More Than Just Another London Club, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor Wheeler. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's lovely to be talking. Professor, why did you uh, write this book? I wrote the book, Dr. Coutinho, because I was asked to. Um, I'd been a member of the Athenaeum since 24, and in 2011, I was approached by the then chairman and a former trustee to write the book. They'd heard me give one or two talks um, to the club, which they clearly enjoyed, and then had researched me a bit more. They'd read my other books, and they felt I was the right person which was very nice. I immediately said no. I was far too busy and it, it, it wouldn't really fit my writing schedule. And then two weeks later, I crawled back and said, yes, of course, it should be a 19th century specialist who writes the book and I'll be happy to do it. But it'll take me six years if you want a really thorough job. And I take it they agreed. They agreed. And uh, contracts were drawn up and everything else. Now, can you describe for those members of the audience who are not that familiar with uh, club land, as it's termed in the UK, uh, what is the Athenaeum? The Athenaeum is a members club. Um, and the, the clubs of London originated, well, if you go back, say, to Shakespeare's time when people met in taverns, for intellectual discussion, or the 18th century when people met in coffee houses. Um, in the late 18th century and the early 19th century, you would got the beginning of what were called members' clubs, and where a group of people would club together. Um, they might rent or build um, a clubhouse, and they'd have shared interests or shared purposes. Um, very often... In the 18th century, they were virtually gambling clubs. In the early 19th century, during the Napoleonic Wars, there was a fairly quiet time. But after the Napoleonic Wars, there emerged a quite new kind of club called the Athenaeum, um, which had a quite fresh purpose. The purpose was, I think, and I show in the book, very much drawing on the learned societies, of which there were three major learned societies in London, a place really where people could meet who had interests in the arts. So we have artists, 
writers um, and scientists, think of the Royal Society, who might come together and form a new kind of club. And so the Athenaeum was formed in 1824. Um, the founders also wanted to draw in people who were really involved in the world of books and of learning. And so they included clergy, particularly bishops. They included judges and they included cabinet ministers in the government. Um, and this meant that you got a real mixture of people, all of whom read, most of whom wrote and published. And so suddenly you had a club developing library, for example, now the greatest in club land and probably the greatest club library in the world. Um, more emphasis on the library than, say, on the bar. Now, this plurality of membership, is that why you begin the book describing a group portrait in the club's recession, re reception room? That's right. Uh, that That's a rather wonderful image. Um, we have the original hanging in the clubhouse. Um, what happened was in the Illustrated London News towards the end of the 19th century, um, there was a series of four profiles of four of the major clubs in London. And the one of the Athenaeum that I reproduce at the beginning of the book shows almost 60 members of that time. And it does give a very vivid sense of the range. So in the foreground, you've got the Archbishop of Canterbury, but you've also got Thomas Huxley, perhaps the most famous scientist and popularization, popularizer of Darwin's ideas. There they are. So you have the church and you have science. And then you've got the Lord Chief Justice. You've got peers of the realm. You've got writers, musicians. So that, that opening image, which I use, um, does give you a sense, as it were, halfway through the history of the Athenaeum, of this amazing range of talent, of an interest, and people cross-fertilizing. You know, that the image shows people in discussion. They're enjoying cups of tea. It's ballot day. They're going to elect new members today. Um, it's a very lively image. But the main emphasis is on conversation. And that's what the place was for and still is for discussion. So you would say that is perhaps the key differential that um, uh, separates the Athenaeum from, say, White's or the Carlton or the Reform or, for that matter, Garrick's. Well, you mentioned four other clubs, all of which I know and, and have enjoyed. Each one has its own character, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, White's is the oldest established a club in, in London and is traditionally, you know, been regarded as an aristocratic club uh, with a rather in the 18th century, 19th century, a, a Tory emphasis. Um, and then you have Brooks's just over the road, you know, which was Whig or Liberal. The Reform Club, which you mentioned, was formed a little bit after the Athenaeum. 
uh, and has a, had a political dimension, clearly. Um, it's called the Reform Club because this was after the Reform Act of 1832. And a few years later, here along comes the, the, the Reform Club, um, which is populated mainly by those uh, of a Whiggish slash liberal persuasion. Um, whereas there were in London, in fact, nine clubs associated just with the Conservative Party alone by the end of the 19th century. So you have political clubs. You've got, as it were, older upper class clubs, some of which still are thriving. Um, and then the Athenaeum has this unique position. It's got a unique place. And one, one thing that's quite interesting, um, and it came out of a lot of the research I did, was that a lot of people who had the money and the power actually were a member of several clubs. Um, and I even discovered that some of the richest and the most powerful changed their clubs over a, over an adult lifetime, which rather surprised me. Um, and, and so... You might have somebody, um, say, a senior statesman, who would have his political club. Um, and then he might be in the later 19th century uh, or 20th century a member of the Garrick. Uh, and at the Garrick, they have a great art collection. But the Garrick is most famous um, as a place where actors and filmmakers and, and barristers enjoy their food and wine um, but then they turn up at the Athenaeum of which they remember and have a rather more um, a rather more high-powered conversation perhaps or use this amazing library who was John Wilson Croker John Wilson Croker is very much the founder of the club um, and I devote uh, a whole chapter, chapter one, to, to Croker's London. He was of Anglo-Irish descent. He became first secretary to the Admiralty in London in 1809 and really was a very, very powerful political figure, his name P, who, with his deputy, also a member of the Athenaeum, um, was in very much in control of the Royal Navy. And so all through the Peninsula War and right up to the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, he was at the very heart of a wartime network of information and of policy relating to the war. Meanwhile, he's a great clubman. Uh, he was a very active member of the Union Club, for example, and learned a lot about how clubs actually work by being a big committee member at the Union Club. He was a socialite. He, he, he had several aristocratic connections and moved in a rather fast set at one time uh, in London. Uh, he was a friend of the Prince Regent and, in fact, at the coronation of the Prince Regent, um, 
the prince was sitting there in, quote, his underwear uh, during the dressing process before the coronation. And who should be sitting there chatting to him but John Wilson Croker? Um, he was a dynamo. He was a workaholic. Um, he was quite disliked in many ways. He was one of those people who I think was more respected than liked. But he did a wonderful job in realising in 1822, 1823, wait a minute, we have clubs in London, but there's a real gap. What we need is this new kind of club. And even though he himself was an ultra Tory, he made sure that when he formed the first committee, that there were more Whigs, in other words, the other side, there were more Whigs than Tories. And he also insisted right from the start that instead of being based, as at, say, Whites, uh, on your background, your family, the blood, membership would be decided on, you know, what, what you had achieved yourself, what you had contributed, what, what books you might have written, whether you were a scientist of some weight, whether you were a member of the learned societies. So he brought in these completely new criteria. And this all came really from him. And he formed around him a group of people who went with his vision. So as in many institutions, I think, um, you know, you get one person who is, yes, the founder, but needs a whole team to bring it to fruition. Why did he wish to found another London club? I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? Yes, of course. Why did he wish to found another London club? I still haven't quite heard. I'm sorry, the sound's not great. Why did he wish to found another London club? Well, because he had spotted this uh, need, I think. Um... You know, if if you look at if you look at the main emphases of the other clubs, which were, um, as I say, either political clubs, Whig or Tory. If you look at and as it were ancestral clubs, people getting together, the great landowners, the most powerful, the richest in the land, getting together in clubs. He, I think, because he saw that there was a need and that, yes, he would think he was the man to do it. And as it turned out, he was right. Did he have a particular model that he based uh, the Athenaeum on? Well, that's a very good question. Um, the answer is a yes and a no. Um, very sensibly, he looked at the constitutions of other clubs, including the Union Club, um, which he knew very well, as I've said, and had a big role in. Um, he took the Union Club constitution, and if you look at its archive and other club archives, you can you can compare these constitutions. There's no point in reinventing the wheel. Um, and then he adapted 
So the constitution was slightly different. Um, so in constitutional terms, it was, you know, fairly regular, pretty much like others. But actually in the membership, in the makeup of the membership, and boy, was he steering the committee. He was in charge. And within a year, the first thousand members have been elected. Um, and he he made sure that the other members of the committee really stuck to the two principles that I mentioned earlier. Um, so, you know, something of a control freak. And as so often, um, the finished product is very grateful to him. Why were there so few creative writers in the club's original membership? Well, yes, it it, it is quite curious, really. Um, I think it's partly a generational thing. Um, you know, as I say in the book, it's interesting to reflect where we were in 1824, um, you know, the post-Waterloo period. Um, the second generation of Romantic poets, for example, you think of Byron, of Shelley, of Keats, they had all died. And then the older generation, you think of Wordsworth, well, Wordsworth, yes, he becomes later poet laureate. Um, but here is Wordsworth, who is really still based um, up in his beloved Lake District, um, although he visits London often enough. Uh, and Coleridge, who in his retirement, there he is up in North London holding court himself. And there's a slight sense that we're sort of between generations of famous writers. But then what happens, um, and you know, there were writers, there were plenty of writers who were members, but they're not household names. Um, in terms of household names, things really change uh, in the 1830s, by which time we've got our own clubhouse. Um, and you've had this extraordinary phenomenon of the club suddenly realising that it needed rather more members than, than it had because... Financial difficulties tended to hit all clubs uh, from time to time. And they thought, no, quickly, we need 40, 40 new members. We need their entrance fees. We need their we need these people. Uh, but we've got to keep up a high quality. So let's have 40 really high quality people. They looked around and a very elaborate system of finding them. Uh, but two of them, uh, like your good self, uh, had the name of Charles. Mm. Um, there was one Charles Darwin, um, of whom most people have heard, um, the greatest scientist of his uh, uh, generation and of century, um, and the other Charles Dickens. Um, and you look at their backgrounds and what a contrast in background. You know, only only a few years before the brilliant young novelist Charles Dickens was elected he had been humiliated by being forced to work in Warren's blacking factory at the age of 11 12 his family are locked up in the debtors prison you know the story um, he then becomes a parliamentary shorthand reporter and a journalist he starts right and suddenly with Pickwick papers he's world famous and in fact, the Athenaeum 
makes him one of the so-called 40 thieves on the basis of Pickwick and just the beginning of Oliver Twist. Whereas Darwin, you know, famous, of course, for the voyages, the, the great voyage of the, the Beagle, and coming from a, 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 a much better healed, a much more prosperous background, very, very different profile. But why are they both in the club? Because uh, they, they're clearly brilliant and on their way to stardom. Why did the club take so long to obtain a home of its own? Well, that's quite a long story. And uh, as you'll have seen, I, I devote a chapter to that. Um, it's an interesting story. Um, as soon as they arrived in their temporary clubhouse in 1824, which was 12 Waterloo Place, uh, just across the way from where we now are, um, as soon as we arrived, plans began to think, how can we raise the money to have a building of our own? And where should we put it? And first of all, the thought was to actually build a clubhouse quite nearby um, in a little area where there was quite a lot of building going on. Um, but that didn't work out for various technical reasons. And then secondly, most intriguingly, there was quite a developed plan. Um, and Decimus Burton was our young architect. Decimus Burton, with Croker, identified a space in what is now Trafalgar Square. Um, and in fact, Africa House, or South Africa House, uh, on that site, quite close to that famous church, St. Martin in the Fields, we, the Athenaeum, could have had our clubhouse right there. And that was the plan for some time. We have to remember that Trafalgar Square, where we now have the National Gallery, that was just a big open space being developed at the end of the great Greek revival in architecture in England. Uh, where Nash's development of central London, you know, the building of Regent Street and linking Regent's Park with St. James's Park is to be a great sort of royal progress. All of that's going on. And so Trafalgar Square is part of this huge redevelopment scheme going on in London. OK, so that doesn't work out either. Because in this case, something even better turned up, and that was that Carlton House, one of the smaller royal palaces, was being demolished. And that is, in fact, where Waterloo Place now is. And so the committee decided that this would be ideal. At the bottom of Pall Mall, at the other end from St. James's Palace, why don't we have a building right here? And it's turned out to be a great success. Um, and so all of that process took six years and the building of our current clubhouse which opened in 1830 um, the actual building of it turned out to be incredibly difficult first of all because we were trying to build on sand there were these huge um, sand pits underneath uh, the what, what is now the building so these great piles had to be put down right down to London clay, uh, we're very different from New York City, built on a rock, 
um, London is built uh, built on clay and parts of it, of course, you've got rather shifting ground above the clay. Uh, and secondly, um, Nash, the great uh, Greek revival architect, um, was a bit of a naughty boy in many ways. He controlled this amazing redevelopment of London and he was manoeuvring um, as a member of the Athenaeum, but he was also uh, designing the United Service Club right right over Waterloo Place, right over the other side. They were meant to be identical clubhouses. And I tell the story of all the shenanigans where he was really putting the committee of the Athenaeum in a difficult place. So it took the whole process took six years. What was rule number two and how did it impact membership recruitment? Well, rule number two was a very clever invention. Um, the big problem at the Athenaeum is it was too successful. Um, at first, there were 1,200 members, and then it moved later in the 19th century up to 1,500 members. But what happened was that with a, with a ceiling on the number of members you could have, you'd hit the ceiling. And so gradually what happened was you got a huge waiting list. Now, that waiting list got up to about 1,600 people queued up. You would wait for 15 years before you came up for a ballot. When you came up for a ballot, you could be turned down, for goodness sake. So two things happened. One was people in men in the queue went off to new clubs that were formed, really, for people who were in the queue. Um, there were two, two other now well-known clubs in London. But more interestingly, from the club's point of view, from the Athenaeum's point of view, they thought, well, how do we bring in people on a fast track? How about bringing in up to nine men who really are the possible superstars of the future, and why don't we have the committee choose up to nine people a year from these different areas that I mentioned earlier? And that's what we did. And they were called Rule 2 members. How do you... I'm sorry. Croker dies in 1857. Did anyone effectively replace him at the club? It wasn't quite like that. Um, yes, I mean... As he got older, he had less influence in the club. But quite, quite early on, they developed a system where actually there was a rotating chairmanship. Uh, and there was a rotating committee. And that has lasted right through to the present day. So that, for example, um, I was on the library committee for six years. And for three of them, I was chairman of the library committee. But the minute I'd finished the, my three years as chairman, I came off. I was also a member of the general committee for three years, and then I came off. And so from from quite an early date, we had a rotating chairmanship. Um, and that meant that you got you know, fresh ideas, but also people working in the tradition that was being developed in the club. How do you explain the eminence that the club acquired by the mid to late Victorian period? Well, I think it I think it was because um, this was a period, the period that 
my other books are about the the great Victorian period. This was a period when um, there was a very close relationship between different aspects of the cultural life of the nation. And so many politicians were also interested in the sciences and in the arts. And there were many people in the arts and the sciences who were very interested in politics. It became the place to be. It became a very attractive place to be. So partly through rule two, attracting, you know, very high powered people. And partly by the attractiveness of the club and its reputation, which had grown incredibly quickly. I mean, by word of mouth. By the time the club moved into its own clubhouse in 1830 and then became even more attractive because the clubhouse is one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. Um, it became so attractive that, yes, the best people were around. So in terms of writers, for example, yes, we had Dickens and we had Thackeray and we had Trollope and we had Thomas Hardy and we had Tennyson. And we had Browning. I mean, you know, need I go on? Um, so most of the leading writers of the day were at least, you know, uh, well, most of them were actually members. And the same was true of the great scientists and so on. Why did Gladstone never become a member of the club? Well, Glad <laughs> that's a very good question. Gladstone, I spent quite a lot of my life working on Gladstone. He was a, he's a fascinating figure, one of the great polymaths of the 19th century. Um, he was a member of more than one club. Um, I, I actually think with Gladstone, he didn't need to become a member because he, he was invited there so often. Um, but of course, of course, you know, he, he was a member of political clubs of his own persuasion, liberal clubs. But the club, interestingly, that he really loved uh, was the Oxford and Cambridge Club, of which I used to be a member at one time, uh, open to graduates of the two ancient universities. Um, uh, Gladstone was a tremendous Oxford man, an Oxonian. And Oxford was very important to him. He loved the Oxford and Cambridge Club for its library um, because the Oxford and Cambridge has several reading rooms. So, again, like so many people, um, Gladstone would, would be a member of different clubs and he'd go to different ones for different reasons. But no, we, ne we never bagged Gladstone. Why and how did the Anthony Library become so quickly one of the very best in clubland? Well, there were two reasons. One was um, that right from the beginning, the committee decided to spend what were then quite large amounts of money on an annual basis on acquiring a good library. We've got to remember that, uh, you know, there was a limit to libraries in London at the time. There were the Learned Societies London uh, uh, London. Learned Society libraries. Uh, the London Library had not yet been formed, which was the great uh, lending library of which many of us are members. Um, so we invested 
money and we had a, a paid librarian who very rapidly um, bought books. But in a way, more interestingly, many of the first acquisitions were what were called presents. In other words, the gifts by members. It was right from the beginning expected that when you wrote a book, you would donate a copy to the Athenaeum Library. And that still exists today. So my books are all in, in the Athenaeum Library, which has now over 70,000 volumes. Uh, it was a very rapid process. And in the book, I talk about, you know, how that happened a bit. The late Victorian period, uh, you describe in the book as having, in terms of the club's um, ethos, a, quote, liberalizing aspect, unquote. What do you mean by that precisely? Well, the you you know I would say as a Victorian cultural historian that the 1860s a very very interesting decade, which in a way prepared the ground for everything that followed up to the First World War. Um, it was in the 1860s that you had in really all professional domains. Um, you you got a loosening of earlier um, ways of working that were dependent upon patronage. So everywhere you looked, it was a matter of who you knew rather than what you knew. By the 1860s, we're getting the beginnings of professionalization and therefore a liberalization of access to the professions. You also got, of course, the Reform Act of 1867, and there were other reforms going on around there, political reforms. Um, within the arts, you got a very interesting development in the sciences. So I talk quite a lot in the book about the X Club, which is a group of liberal-minded Darwinians. And this led to very interesting clashes with the more conservative bishops who populated the club and very famous. The Athenaeum is famous for its bishops. Um, and then later in the 19th century, as you get the great tussle between Gladstone and Israeli, you could say that the whole culture um, moves in various liberal directions. One other thing I'd comment on is this, that in a way the principles of the Athenaeum are very close from the beginning to what we would now call um, the principles of the liberal arts and sciences. So in the States, when you have a faculty or a college or a university of the liberal arts and sciences, there is that understanding of liberal in the sense of freedom, freedom to explore, freedom to investigate, freedom to express um, views that might be controversial, for example. Well, that is really the spirit in which the Athenaeum by the end of the 19th century is operating. And there's almost um, there's almost a welcoming uh, among committee members of uh, th those who might well disagree with the existing experts on their own subject, but that's fine. 
Let's have a discussion. So the liberal in that sense, freedom, openness, exploring ideas and principles. How did the club handle the societal changes caused by the two world wars of the 20th century? Would it be true to say that for the most part the club remained um, true to its traditions? Very much so. Um, I have to say that I was surprised to find that I really enjoyed writing those two chapters. The chapter on the First World War, such a terrible, terrible time, um, and the Second World War, fewer casualties, but a terrible, terrible time. Um, the club stayed open through both conflicts and the club took on a very important role. Um, at the beginning of its life, when the Houses of Parliament were being rebuilt after the Great Fire of 1834, the clubs in clubland were meeting places for politicians. Well, during the war, you have members who are working in Whitehall. Uh, let's make that plural. Let's say the two wars. Uh, you have members who are working in Whitehall who are, as it were, running the war from Whitehall, rather like Croker during the Peninsula War. You get serving officers who are at home on leave who come to the clubhouse. And you also get members who are writers and artists who are recruited to be official writers and official artists. And then you get the scientists, the medics, who at times of war, science and medicine develops much, much quicker during a war because there's a great need. It's also true of engineering. And under the exigencies of war, um, engineering, science, medicine accelerate. And so it becomes, it continues to serve as a meeting place in London for all of that. Meanwhile, it's also a meeting place for uh, MI5 and MI6 and for national uh, security agencies. Um, and it turns out for traitors, for spies. Uh, so there's something very interesting going on there. But in the Second World War, for example, we have to look at um, a figure like Sir Henry Tizard, who is heading up teams of scientists working on that most crucial uh, subject of radar radar which changed the direction of the war so really it's all of these things coming together by traders of course you're referring to the egregious harold adrian russell philby <laughs> I, I certainly am kim philby who if i may pam got under the radar um of course he was a gentleman an educated gentleman whose father was a very distinguished man. And of course he was let into the club in his early 20s. And 
um, you know, he he fooled everybody, of course. That's what spies do. Um, and there he was. Uh, he took up a very right-wing stance in order to conceal his uh, true affiliations. Uh, and the real damage he did, of course, was was later, is during the during the Cold War. Would it be true to say that the popular image of the club as a place for predominantly bishops uh, was not the case earlier in, say, the late 19th century or the Edwardian period? Well, we've always had bishops. Um, and in the 19th century and early 20th century, we had virtually all the bishops. Um, we've got to remember that bishops were conspicuous. By their dress, they dressed quite differently from anybody else. You could spot a bishop across the 100-foot drawing room. And therefore, their presence was slightly exaggerated, I think, because the lawyers, for example, they were in mufti. Um, in the 20th century, we continued to have bishops, and indeed we have bishops today, but fewer of them. Um, today, it turns out that more bishops are members of the Farmers' Club where the membership is, is is smaller. And so their dioceses don't have to pay out uh, quite so much for the fees. Um, but it was a, it, it always was a, a haven for bishops um, because, again, we have to remember that bishops were forever leaving their diocese and having to come into London for major meetings. And what a useful place to meet your brethren and to plot the next move in church politics. How did the club evolve in the post-1960s period? Well, it responded in a very interesting way to, to the so-called Cultural Revolution. Um, by the 1960s, the whole of clubland was really looking to its laurels a little bit and, and wondering whether there was a future for these very traditional clubs, where younger people, for the first time, we all know, I mean, those of us who, who are of that generation, you know, as a baby boomer myself, I, the, the 1960s, I was there. You know, I was 21 years old in 1968, for goodness sake. Um, it's like Wordsworth being, you know, 19 at the Bastille. Um, so we remember that time of, of the Cultural Revolution um, the club wasn't quite sure where it might go and was regarded externally as quite stuffy, quite traditionalist, and then began a process of adaptation. It became very obvious that, as in other clubs, there had to be some moving with the times. So that, for example... Um, guests had become more and more important over time um, in the life of the club. Um, an annex had been um, hired, a very gracious building, uh, for the use of ladies, uh, in other words, the wives of members. But now we get a move towards a real changes in society, um, where there's a, a movement educationally towards mass access to education, 
the expansion of the university system. All of these things had a big uh, effect on the makeup of, if you like, the British elite. Um, and the club in many ways went with that very successfully. And I came to see by the time I'd ended my research and writing over six years, that in fact, in the last 25 years, the club, you could say, has reinvented itself. So we were one of the early clubs of, of men's, men's clubs uh, to uh, admit women members. And those that joined in 2002, it turned out to be a, a very successful and easy transition to have women members who are now today extremely influ influential in the club. At the moment, we have uh, a woman chairman. Um, and so, you know, those changes sort of happened over the last 50, 60 years are reflected in the way in which the club operates. But... To, to come back to your question, the founding principles remain the same. And so that's why I've entitled my final chapter, Plus a Change, on the basis that, yes, the world changes. The, and as we all know, in the last 50 years has changed out of all recognition. But the club has maintained its traditions of providing a place where like-minded people can come together in, with for open-minded social interaction and, and discussion. And the thing I'd want to emphasize most in a way is that my book is not about, it's not an internally um, uh, orientated book. It's not about the way the club operates, although I look at that. It's much more about what the club through its members brought to the world, what how the Athenaeum members influenced the wider world of Britain and outside. And that still remains today. So a lot of, I would say the majority of members of the Athenaeum have in one way or another made a contribution to British society and culture, that is noteworthy. What do you think is the future of the club? Who knows? Um, this last year has been quite extraordinary for everybody, of course. Um, it's interesting to see that the Athenaeum has responded in its usual way. It has remained open online. Between lockdowns, it reopened with obviously the usual caution about staying two metres apart and wearing a mask. Uh, during lockdown, all the committees, all the many activities of the club which has been part of its reinvention in the last 25 years, all of those activities have been represented in an online form so that we've had uh, musical concerts, we've had discussions, we've had talks, the, the film, there's a film group, you know, it, it goes on. There, there's one particular group 
that's, that's extremely interesting uh, that majors on poetry. And so we've had, um, during these lockdowns, we've had poets online, people writing about famous poets of the past and the present. Uh, and so it's typical of the Athenaeum that it, it has adapted to the present circumstances. My prediction is that the Athenaeum has such a strong profile, it's got a strong membership base, it has maintained its, its, its staff uh, through this period. The Athenaeum, um, everybody who's appeared online um, through this period are, are longing to get back into the clubhouse and to continue club life. And I, I think it will continue, <coughs> and I think it will continue to adapt in, again, a very different world. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? The one thing I'd want people to take away from the book is an impression of a club which is 200 years old, which has always looked outwards, where the genius of the club is really not in, as it were, the windows looking onto Pall Mall, where a passing world peers in through the window and the members inside peer out at those walking past. No, the genius of the Athenaeum is represented in its doorway facing onto Waterloo Place and the steps and the portico because it's the traffic between the world outside the clubhouse and all that's going on inside the clubhouse where people... Um, they, they go into the club in order to restore themselves, to refresh themselves, but they're, they're contributors and they go out into the world and members of the club have over 200 years continue to make a difference. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Wheeler, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Castillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Wheeler. Thank you, Dr. Coutinho. It's been a, po- a pleasure.